Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. Okay, guys, really happy to sit down this week and chat to Dr. Trent Nessler about all things ACL and movement screening prep. So Dr. Trent Nessler is the president of Rebound Vitality, a senior sports medicine contributor for Sports Ed TV, and he's the founder and developer of the VI Performance Athletic Movement Index and VI Perform Athletic Movement Index Return to Sport. ACL Play It Safe and Run Safe programs. Trent holds a bachelor's degree in exercise physiology, a master's degree in physical therapy, and a doctorate with a focus on biomechanics and motor learning. Dr. Nessler has been a sports medicine physical therapist for 23 plus years, working with athletes of all levels from the pros to weekend warriors. Trent is also the co-developer of a 3D movement assessment that is used by 450 plus pro teams, colleges, and organizations and has been used to assess over 25,000 athletes in the U.S. and is used in several national research projects. Trent is a published researcher and author of college textbooks, speaks internationally on the topic of ACL injuries and prevention, and serves as a consultant for professional teams and organizations. As a sports physical therapist, avid weightlifter, and competitive Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu purple belt, Trent is always looking for ways to apply the latest science to optimize outcomes and enhance athletic performance. In this episode, me and Trent talk about what drew him to a career in physical therapy, his work around ACL rehabilitation, the development of the Athletic Movement Index, and his current work with Rebound Vitality and how they are serving first responders. Good afternoon, Trent, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, John. Really excited to do this. Hey, no problem, Trent. Thank you very much for sparing some of your time. I know you're a busy guy. Oh, thank you. You know, it's... it. Quite honestly, I always love sharing the passion for what we do. So this is, to me, this is just a, a part of the, the requirement, right? Yeah, definitely, man. I mean, thank you very much for being so open and coming on to share your knowledge. Um, I've been following your work for probably a little while now, and it's just like through Instagram and that. And I would quite like your diversity as well of all the stuff you share. Obviously, I've just started PT school, so I really love the stuff you're putting out from a physical therapy standpoint. Obviously, you're a JITS guy as well, which is really cool to see. And for me, the, the that holy trinity comes in there now with regards to what I call it the dad memes. I love your the, yeah. the, the the funny stuff you post up, dude. Honestly, I look at it, and I'll be laughing my ass off. I send it to friends. It's it's great <laughs> content out there, bud. That's awesome. I, I'm glad you enjoy that. You know, it's it's funny because I always try to balance of of being professional and not not over the over the borderline. So, but it also gives people kind of a good idea of what your humor is. So. Definitely, man, definitely. Now, obviously, me and you, Trent, you know, had a chance to chat uh, back and forth a little bit, dude. But for anyone who hasn't come across you and, you know, the work you're doing, Trent, can you just give us a little bit of background of where you started your career out and where you're trying to Sure. So uh, I'm a physical therapist by trade. Um, I've been in uh, sports medicine practice for, gosh, almost 24 years. Um, You know, I started out in a uh, sports medicine clinic. I've always worked in sports medicine. Um, early on in my career, um, you know, I got just a, a lot of great exposure. We worked in uh, professional baseball. I got to spend time in professional baseball athletic training rooms. Um, the group that I worked with, we covered a lot of pro baseball teams. So I got involved a lot in physicals and in doing orthopedic physicals for uh, Major League Baseball. Um, and then my clinic, you know, I was seeing a lot of uh, kids with ACLs, ACL reconstruction. Just give you an idea when I say a lot. I mean, we had a two week period where we had uh, 23 ACL reconstructions. And so, as a, as a therapist, you know, and, and as an ex strength guy, you know, I was a personal trainer, a strength coach, you know, I was seeing these kids as I would go through their rehab. I was seeing certain movement patterns I knew intuitively kind of put them at risk. So, I actually went back to school and did my doctorate to focus in biomechanics and motor learning. And, Really, um, the goal of that was to, you know, I wanted to to develop an assessment because I knew that if I could assess it, I could treat it. So I started working on this whole assessment thing and, you know, it took a lot longer than I anticipated. It took about 18 years. You know, um, you know, part of that was a technology issue. Part of it was, you know, how do you scale something like that to make it uh, reliable and valid when you've got, you know, thousands of people that use it? You know, I think any any movement assessment you look at, you know, there there's are the there are those challenges. Yeah. Uh, and so in 2013, I actually started working with Microsoft to program the Xbox. 
um, to integrate our movement assessment that we had refined um, and try to find a way to objectively capture that information. Spent a good, good amount of time on that. And then uh, in 2017, we scrapped that project. The technology just wasn't there. And, you know, in Microsoft, we spent about 1.5 million on it, you know, and, and so um, went back to the drawing board. I thought, quite honestly, I didn't, I didn't know if we were going to be able to do it. I uh, came across a technology called Dartfish. It's coming out of Australia. Um, I met with their CEO, um, integrated uh, our assessment with their technology. We commercialized it in uh, 2017, and now we've got over 450 systems across the U.S., and we've uh, used it to assess um, over 25,000 athletes. Wow. Um, with that, we, uh, we capture 1,500 uh, 1, data points for every assessment. Mm -hmm. So we have just over 30 million data points related to human movement. And so what it's allowed me to do, I think, clinically, professionally, um, is really kind of look and see, you know, number one, what are, what are some of the correlations? You know, how does a 16-year-old female soccer player move versus a 16-year-old lineman versus 16-year-old running back? Because they all move differently what puts one at risk versus another at risk. But then also, you know, you, you talk to every therapist in the world and, and you ask them if they change movement. Of course I change movement. Well, how do you know? How do you measure it? Well, I, I measure it by my eyeball. I watch and move. Well, yeah, you know, we know that actually doesn't work, right? So, you know, one of the things that it's been really good for me is to actually vet what exercises work and what exercises don't work. Uh, and so it's it's actually allowed us to provide some really uh, innovative solutions. There's a, a program that we developed with TheraBand and Kramer called ACL Play It Safe uh, that we put out on the market. It's a free app. So it's, I'm not advertising that for people, but it's a free app. It's out there. It's got a video for every single exercise that we do. And we've shown that when you do that, that um, you not only get an improvement on the movement assessment, but guess what? Musculoskeletal injuries go down. Uh, healthcare costs goes down and uh, performance goes up. You know, we look at vertical jump and sprint speed. Other things that we're doing is we're looking at how movement correlates to kinesiophobia, you know, the, the fear of movement. Um, we actually use a, a, a patient reported outcome called the TSK-11. We've got a really nice study going on right now. We've got over 300 subjects where we're seeing strong correlations with our movement assessment and how they score on the TSK-11. So we're seeing that these athletes who score poorly on the TSK-11, their movement is, is significantly altered. And, and as that movement improves, their score on the TSK-11 improves. One of the other things that's really kind of in my, my passion wheelhouse is BFR, blood flow restriction training. So we've actually got some studies uh, going on looking at early implementation of BFR in the ACL rehab process and how that impacts biomechanics. Um, how that how that improves quad control and how that improved biomechanics and quad control impacts kinesiophobia. You know, so all of these things, you know, which historically you would have to do in a biomechanics lab. Historically, you would have to, you know, uh, run years and years worth of data to get the numbers that we're getting. Um, but we're literally, you know, like uh, I was, you know, we were just talking last weekend, I was in Birmingham, Alabama, and, and we ran 200 athletes in two days, you know, so that the, the volume of data that we're able to capture, you know, is just, it's amazing. That is awesome. I mean, first of all, you know, Trent, it sounds like you've had an awesome, a really diverse career. And like you say, it's been a big body of work. You said there about 18 years or so again, this, you know, through like coming up with the concept and developing it over time, technology playing catch up with what you want out of it as well. I'm really keen to dive into that, you know, in a little bit. I just want to start, first of all, just right back at the beginning, you, you know, what, what actually drove you to get into the field of physical therapy as well? You know, you said you were a strength guy and that was it just something you picked up along the line or did you want that like little background sort of thing like, right, I want this as a career path? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I was, I was an overweight kid mm -hmm. uh, and I, I had a brother who got me into weightlifting when I was 10. Um, been a weightlifter ever since then, competed, you know, both at the local level and as well as the national level through high school and college. Um, and what got me interested actually in PT was my father's quadriplegic. So my dad, uh, when I was 10 years old, he, uh, we were in a foreign country. Uh, he suffered a, a C5, 6, 7 burst fracture. 
um, and uh, in a foreign country, you yeah. know, with third world, we are a third world country, you know, so, you know, the fact that he lived through that alone is amazing. This is back in 1979, you know, and he was shipped to the U.S. He died three times. He, you know, uh, he uh, survived. He, I got to see as a, a young kid, the impact that physical therapy had on the family, you know, that it had on my dad. And, and I kind of knew at that point that I wanted to be a physical therapist. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you the, the ironic part of that story is that, you know, I'm a firm believer that God puts you on a path for a reason. And, and um, you know, I, he did that for two reasons for me. Number one, my dad, when I graduated PT school, I've seen my dad do things that he shouldn't be able to do. So we actually, we actually started to work with him and got him up and walking for the first time in 25 years with lobster and crutches mm-hmm. to the point where he was ditching his wheelchair for his daily activities. So he, he had a whole new, a whole new lease on life, so to speak. And unfortunately was involved in a car wreck and had a C1, C2 spinal cord injury after that. So he's now a complete quad, um, but he's still an amazing driven individual. Um, But the other reason I feel like that was a calling is that uh, I've got a a handicapped special needs daughter, you know, and, and quite honestly, I'm a firm believer that it, it, all that experience prepared me, you know, to be a dad, you know, a dad of a special needs child. And it's, uh, it's been a lifesaver for sure. That's incredible. I mean, what your dad's gone through and, you know, getting them back up and getting uh, onto crutches out of the chair, you know, through that initial uh, phase when he first had that um, uh, injury as well. I've seen the video you mentioned about on uh, YouTube as well. It's it's an absolutely incredible watch. I'll I'll probably link it to our show notes so people can actually see that as well. But yeah, one one incredible pathway through there as well. Um, Obviously, you you talked a little bit at the start there, Trent, about looking at ACL injuries and stuff like that as well. Was it just your interest from that spike from obviously your athletic background, but also seeing just that pure volume of uh, patients coming through your clinic. You're like, actually, hang on, I'm going to dive into this a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I tell people this all the time. Uh, I'm a firm believer that it was way beyond my intellectual capabilities. I feel sometimes like, you know, somebody was speaking through me. I feel like God was speaking through me. I feel like that was a calling. I don't know what what it was about it, but I just felt called to try to do something about this. Um, and, you know, through determination and persistence, um, you know, it started, it actually started writing the algorithm started, I was writing a, a college textbook on human movement, how to, how to assess human movement, take that information uh, and use that as a part of your clinical practice. Mm-hmm. It was after, it was during the course of, or during the the part of writing that book um, that actually, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, as I'm writing all these correlations, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I really think if we had technology, like we could vet this out. And so I started creating this Excel spreadsheet and it turned into, you know, 120 tab Excel spreadsheet of all the different correlations. Um, And basically that was like the first iteration of getting the algorithms that we needed to make all the connections. It's incredible. I know, obviously, you've done a lot of research into it now, and you were talking there at the start about how it's taken a long time to get your your movement screening process up to where you want now with the technology as well to back it up as well. Where did you start with that? You know, so obviously you've got the athletic movement index. Yep. You know, what made you sit there and go? Because obviously there's plenty of movement screens out there. You know, we've got the FMS. I've chatted to you before about the athletic ability assessment out of Australia as well as. There's a few different um, movement assessment tools out there. What made you look at them and be like, you know what, this isn't doing it for me and I want to build out from this? Well, you know, the, the, the first part of that is when I started this in 97, there wasn't those. Okay. <laughs> you know, when I first, uh, in, in, in I, was, I was probably about three or four years into it and I came across the FMS. I'm like, oh, holy cow, somebody's done what I wanted to do. You know, why recreate the wheel? Uh, and so I stopped for a while and I started using the FMS and quite honestly, we ran a couple of studies with it and what I was seeing that the, and I, you know, I always hesitate to say this cause I don't want to step on a time bomb here, but from everything that I read from the orthopedic sports medicine literature, as it relates to ACL risk, dynamic valgus, if you look at papers from Hewitt, Meyer, Stearns, Powers, anybody that's in the, in the, uh, in the ACL realm, 
Um, they talk about dynamic valgus. They talk about these positions, positions at which the FMS does not measure. And so, you know, I kept struggling with that. I'm like, wait, the literature's telling me I should measure this. I'm using this. There's not a correlation. And quite honestly, there's been several big papers published really since about 2015 that just says the positive predictive value of the FMS is very, very low. And so, you know, as I was going through that process, I'm like, I got to find a better way of doing this. You know, the other thing is that I really struggled with was the sensitivity of that test. Yeah. You know, if you, if you score poorly on all three reps, you score based on the, the poorest performance, right? Yeah. So if you, if your next time you come through and, and you score, you do really well on two reps, but not on the third, you still score the same. And so, you know, you can literally have, 66% improvement and not be reflected on the score. And that, that goes to the, to the point of sensitivity. Yeah. Now um, on ours, our test, you literally make change on one rep. It's recorded on that rep, you know? So it's, it's uh, you know, besides the fact that, that I felt like it wasn't sensitive enough, that it was still too subjective. Um, the other piece of that was it wasn't, I, I felt like we needed to record what the literature was telling us to record. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly on that trend as well. I know, like from my time being as a strength coach, the, some of the movement screens I've used, um, I was telling you about the athletic ability assessment or AAA of Australia with McCallum. Um, I, I liked it in some regards because obviously it brought in load and it brought in velocity on a single limb as well, with some of the jump tests and some of the single limb uh, strength stuff as well. But once again, it was quite a lot around just, you know, that that uh, range of scale. So, you know, one to three. So like someone scored a two, you know, it's very slight differences between the two and the three sort of things. So it's just like, as you say, where's that sensitivity within it? Right. You know, if that person scored a three that week, you know, was it really a worthwhile change within them or is it not that accurate to capture? Well, you know, and you brought up another good point. You know, one of the things uh, that a lot of those tests are missing are some serious solid core testing. Yeah. You know, um, there was a great study published by Jong, the American Journal of Sports Medicine, just last month uh, that showed that uh, improved performance of core stability, and specifically plank and side plank, um, that you not only do you improve neuromuscular control of the lower kinetic chain, you improve lower kinetic chain biomechanics. De Blazier even showed the same thing last year, American Journal of Sports Medicine, where he looked at core testing and he said that the, you know, the, most, the most sensitive tests were uh, prolonged endurance on both uh, the plank and the side plank. You know, we suspected that. I mean, we started using the plank and side plank back in you know, really like 2014. Um, and we suspected that that was true and that that was there. Yeah. Um, but now the research is coming out and showing it. That's cool. That was really cool. Because I mean, it's good to have that research backing up and then like obviously the sensitivity within the data collection as well. Um, and I quite like the fact that and we'll touch on it a little bit, like the objective measures with regards to your um, testing, whereas we say with law and um, movement assessments, it's very subjective. Yep. Um, and I always remember like, you know, you mentioned Greg Myers there, who's done a ton on uh, ACL re uh, research as well. And um, he's got the, the, the tuck jump assessment. And I was like, okay, fair enough. You know, you want to look at alignment and like, you know, absorption of force. But as we said earlier, it's very different when you're comparing athletes from different sports, different genders and as well. So obviously my, my big thing was always going to be like, you know, if you've got a lineman from, you know, uh, NFL or American football sort of thing, or like from our rugby perspective, one of our forwards, who like generally bigger guys, like a bit thicker for the midsection, their tuck jump is going to be very different just because they've got so much mass in the front as well compared to that 16-year-old soccer player. Yep. I, I couldn't agree more, you know, and that's, that's one of the things I think that we've done is a mistake is you know, and the FMS was famous for that because they, they, you know, you score 14, you're, you're at greater risk. Doesn't matter if you're a 15 year old football player or, you know, an NFL professional player, mm -hmm. you know, and I think we tried to categorize all these people as the same. Matter of fact, we've got this large research project going on and I was on a research meeting uh, with all these orthopedic surgeons and they said, well, what's the cutoff? What's the cutoff, you know, for that puts somebody at risk? And I said, you know, it really depends. I mean, are you talking a 16-year-old female soccer player 
or a 16 year old lineman or a 16 year old running back because what puts one at risk versus another risk is very, very different, you know? So their scores should be different, you know, and in what that is right now, we don't know. Um, we are collecting that data, you know, but you know, we've got, we've got 25,000 right now. What we really need to be is around 75,000 to a hundred thousand with all of those data points where we can really see, okay, what is the most predictive test? What, what of these, where is, where is the average 16 year old soccer player? You know, so those are the kind of questions that I'm trying to answer, you know, um, you know, at this point, you know, since the, the system's out there, it's been developed, um, you know, we've got 450 systems, we're probably selling 10 a month, you know, um, my hope is, is that as we continue to expand the system, that, you know, next year will be, you know, now that we're coming off COVID, yeah. you know, COVID really slowed things down quite a bit, our data capture, we were typically getting about two to 4,000 a month. And I think as we continue uh, through COVID, I think we're going to start to see even bigger and bigger numbers. You know, quite honestly, that's one of the things that we're doing right now. Um, we've applied for a DOD grant, a very large grant looking at movement in special operations. We're using it in, in fire and police, you know, and again, you know, what puts a firefighter at risk versus a NFL football player is probably different, you know. And so, you know, by using a standardized system like that, that completely removes my eyeballs and subjectivity out of it is so much better. We use an IMU, inertial measurement unit that captures uh, acceleration data, uh, motion data, uh, and it's, it's, it's within 3% of a Viacon. I mean, it's very accurate. Yeah, that's cool. That is really cool, Trent. I mean, Obviously, you know, uh, with regards to the uh, athletic movement index, you know, you create, um, how, how does that actually run? So for the guys who are listening, if you were running through a test, what would be the sequence you'd put the guys yeah. through and like how long would it typically take yeah. to run through an assessment? Yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny because, you know, when I go and I present to some of our NFL teams, they're like, well, how long does it take? And I say 15 minutes. Oh, it's too long. It's too long. You know, you can make it, you can make a shorter test. You can, you can actually have a shorter test. The problem is, is that you're not gleaming the same information. So yeah. I always tell them, I said, you know, you can have a test that is half the length, but do you want to go half ass or do you want to go full force? Yeah. I prefer to go full force. I mean, I don't want half the information. If you truly want to know, you need to do the whole sequence. And so what we do is we do plank first. They go one minute plank. They do squats, they do 20 squats, they do a right side plank and left side plank. The idea with the right and the left side plank is we are pre-fatiguing your glute med. Highest EMG activity uh, during that test is a glute med. So we pre-fatigue your glute med, you do everything on the right side. You do single leg squat, single leg hop, what's called a hop plant, jump forwards, backwards, lateral and medial. And then we do an ankle lunge test to clear your ankle. Then we repeat that cycle on your left side. So the idea is that, you know, it's a physically taxing test. I tell people all the time, I don't want to see what you look like when you step on the field. Mm -hmm. What I want to see is what you look like after you've been on the field. So when you've been on the field for a while, I want to see how you move. I don't care how you move when you step on, because most likely you're going to get injured later in the game. And that's what I want to see. How do you move when you do that? You know, so for our really high level athletes, you know, I've done some UFC guys. You know, and their, their, their strength, their endurance is off the freaking chart, right? Mm -hmm. So we actually have a published fatigue protocol that we use called the FAST FP. It's a functional agility short-term fatigue protocol. It was first published in the Journal of Athletic Training in December 12, uh, 2012. And it showed that by going through this sequence that it's, it's the only fatigue protocol that will provide multi-directional fatigue. And so it's what we use. It literally takes four and a half minutes to do it. And then we do our movement assessment right after. And so what it's allowed us to do, even for those high level guys, for that, you know, that UFC guy, you know, we're able to tax him enough that when I go through the movement assessment, now I can see where he's falling apart. Because, you know, when you, when you go a, a five or an eight minute round getting punched in the face, you know, your, your movement matters, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's one of the key things I've always said I feel is missing from a lot of movement assessments is, you know, how do athletes change their movement patterns and react under a state of fatigue? And yeah, 100%, it's 
it's getting that fine balance between risk and reward. No one's saying, you know, go out and trash them completely so you can see what they move like. But right. um, from my background, when I was working with some uh, quite really high level rowers, you know, their assessments, back injuries are like the, the plague within rowing just because of the sheer volume and constant flexion extension to the spine. But for us, for some of their um, movement assessment programs, it was like one of the tests was just like, uh, plank and side plank, just you know, static positions. It's like, okay, great, they can hit these two three minute markers, that's fine. But what do they actually look like under safety when they're actually on the right. in the on the ergo? So, big thing for me was just setting them up when they were doing their 2000 meter ergo tests. So, all right, let's get the camera side on and let's just see, like, side on them uh, from behind posture and just see what they look like at 500 meter intervals. Yep. So, yep. start of the race, 500, halfway point of 1000. And then that final thousand meters, where do they fall apart? Can they hold shape or not? And I think that's a bit more applicable. Absolutely, and and, and I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, one of the things that we're doing right now is we're actually breaking down the movements to see, you know, which movement is the most predictive for risk. Mm -hmm. um, we've got a study going on right now where we've we're looking at uh, eight hundred Division One athletes. You know, and, and one of the things that I've told the authors, uh, the, the lead researchers on this is I'm like, you got to keep in mind that, you know, when we're looking at X, Y, or Z movement, they've done all this on the back, on the front end. Like they went through five different movements before they got to this point. Cause I think I know what the movement is. I'm not going to say, because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bias the paper. I think I know what it is, but you've done all this, all this pre-prep work before you get there so there's a level of fatigue that's there so the one thing i don't want them to do is is you know publish a paper that says this is the most predictive movement pattern um and then people go and say well that's all i got to do then and all i got to do is a five minute or a three minute test mm -hmm. just do this one movement and it's going to give me the information no what you don't understand is all the stuff's been done on the front end to create that level of fatigue that when they go to this then they look like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think there's a lot of people out there who are guilty of that, just snatching onto small bits of research and like, you know, these golden chestnuts, like, right, okay, I'll take that, rather than, like you say, looking at the thing in its entirety and say, like, right, what yep. built up to actually predict this? Yep. That's cool. You know, it's like, I, I just did a, an, another assessment on a volleyball player today, you know, and it's, you know, I, I uh, and, and, and her mom is a very experienced, very good uh, sports medicine clinician, you know, and when we went through her movement assessment, she was just shocked mm -hmm. at all the things, you know, as you point them out, I'm like, I didn't even think to look at that. I'll give you a perfect example. One of the things that we've seen is that when an athlete gets into a side plank, most people look at the side plank, right? Maybe they look up the shoulders to see that, you know, if the person's shoulders are rolling forward on the down arm, their serratus anterior is weak because it's not pulling them up and, and stabilizing that against their thoracic cage. So maybe they see that, but what they don't do is look down at the feet for what we call a tibial drop. So there's this thing called a tibial drop where their tibia drops down to the floor. So, so in a side plank is what happens is your ankles should stay like really stable, right? Stay in a neutral position. Sometimes what happens is that somebody's ankle is weak and they roll like this and their tibia drops down to the ground. Call mm -hmm. it a tibial drop. We see that that has a high correlation uh, with athletes who suffer from lateral ankle sprains because it indicates that they don't have the strength or endurance to stabilize their ankle in a neutral position. So how are they gonna do that when they do single leg hops and things like that? So that's just, again, that's one of the things, one of the pearls that we've pulled out of this that are just, you know, you don't see unless you get that mass amount of data. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, that, that's incredible trend. I mean, saying it's, it's brand new to me. I wouldn't even thought right. it down like there as well. I know like for some of the changes we made to the side plank stuff with regards to that AAA assessment from McCown was just, taking the guys from, um, well, from plank and side plank, from being on elbows into straight arm extension. But then you've got to ask the question with regards to um, side planking on the hand, because obviously yeah. you want to assess shoulder stability as well. But then suddenly it's like, right, is it 
Now, show stability assessment or the uh, trunk assessment sort of thing. So where, where does that boundary line lie? And that's the tough thing, I think, with that. But that's incredible. I'm going to go back and look at some of these videos now and just assess his ankles. But, and, and I tell you, you know, it's stuff like that that's just, you know, you start to see that when you start looking at mass data, right? Yeah. You know, so one, of the, one of the other things that we've seen, we know that McPherson published some really good studies back in 2000. I'm sorry, not 2000, 2020. Uh, that looked at uh, concussion uh, and ACL risk. And what they showed was, is that if you've had a concussion, you're three times more likely to injure your knee upon return to play up to three years after a concussion. And so, you know, the question I had is, well, why is that, right? So one of the things we've been tracking concussion and we track, you know, frontal plane control, we track all these single limb activities. One of the things that we've seen is that if somebody has a history of concussion, they have much more frontal plane control or they have much more frontal plane motion of their knee during single limb activities and their speeds of valgus are much higher. So knowing that it's totally changed our, our concussion protocols, right? So, so historically what we had for our concussion rehab is you know we had our vestibular therapist working on vestibular issues you know, we had some balance stuff that we would work on and stuff like that. We never did single leg squats. We never did single leg hops until after we found this out. Now we know as a part of our protocol, we have got to do single leg squats. We've got to do single leg hops in hop plants, multi-directional hops, because we got to train them to control that frontal plane motion after a concussion, because that just doesn't come back. I mean... Yeah, it's an incredible thing to think of there as well, just like how it's all interesting and interlinked within that as well. Um, I was going to ask you, Trent, with regards to your, um, you know, your athletic movement uh, index assessment, you have teamed up with Dorsey V as well, so you mm -hmm. can capture all your data points. How did that, uh, how did that come about, you know, just that meeting with Dorsey V and, you know, what does Dorsey V actually tell you with regards to the assessment? Sure. So, you know, it's funny because, Again, I'm a firm believer that things happen for a reason. And yeah. um, I just happened to be on their website and uh, I, I put a contact in there and one of their salespeople called me and she actually happened to be a PT. And she called me and I started talking to her about what I wanted to do. Like, this is what I, this is what I see. This is what I'm trying to do. This is how I tried to do it before with Microsoft, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, yeah, you know, we really need to do is we're an Australian based company. I really need to do is get our CEO to, to contact you. I'm like, okay, there's the blow off, right? Yeah. There it goes. Guess I'll never talk to him again. And uh, he literally called me uh, the very next week. And uh, he and I had about an hour conversation and uh, I happened to be teaching uh, that weekend out in Colorado. And he said, well, where are you going to be at this weekend? I said, you know what? I'm going to be in Colorado teaching he said, well, he's like, I'll fly. Uh, he was flying from Melbourne, uh, flew to Colorado. He and I mm -hmm. sat down, had about a four hour dinner and uh, both conceptually walked away and said, this is what we got to do. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. You know, Andrew is an amazing guy. He's the CEO of uh, uh, Dorsavi. Um, he's a physio by trade. Um, he and I resonated a lot on what we wanted to do and what we wanted to try to accomplish. Um, and the beauty and the reason that I went with Dorsa V number one is I'm all about reliability, validity, you know, making sure that I'm, that it's something that's, you know, it's got my name on it, right. You know, that it's, it's reflective of that. Um, they went through an FDA process in the U S uh, for uh, two separate modules that the, the uh, Dorsa V had, they had a, a low back module and they had a knee module. And so when we, when, when they got their FDA evaluation for that um, and all the validations that they did for it and got approved for it and told me it was legit. And so we built the EMI using the back module and the knee module together um, to create the EMI. And so again, it just, you know, it made sense. Um, you know, the, the, I think the one thing that this assessment does that no other assessment does is we provide speed. So if you stood up right now and you got in a single leg squat and you moved your knee, let's say into 10 to 20 degrees of valgus, you could do that and it probably doesn't hurt you too bad. But if you did that same thing and you moved your knee at 250 degrees per second, 
you would probably rupture something. And so, you know, one of the things that we measure is not just how much frontal plane motion do you have, but what speed does that occur at? And it's told us a lot. Matter of fact, we know, we know what that speed should be for a single leg squat. We know what that speed should be for a single leg hop. We know what that speed should be for a hop plant. Um, in addition, we also know what the magic number is. And when I say magic, not magic in a good way, the magic number that if you go over 220 degrees per second, you're going to be a lot more likely to suffer a lot of lower kinetic chain injuries. Those are typically your athletes who end up suffering from either patellofemoral issues, ACL, hip, ankle, you know, they come to you every season with something on the same side. I mean, it's simply because they're not controlling those speeds. They're, they're an incredible bit of kit. I mean, the units themselves are pretty small as well, quite discreet with around the body. And you say they go on the back and just on the knee as well, you're looking there. So what does it sit just within the tibia, is it? Yes, sits on the shank. So there, there's a template uh, based on height. Uh, we measure, you know, we put one at L5S1 and one at the thoracic lumbar junction. Uh, for uh, the first four tests. Then we take that off and we move that down to the shank. So it's really only two sensors that you use. Uh -huh. uh, we use them up, up above for the first four. We move them down below for the next, next, next series. Um, and on the shank is what we look at for that frontal plane motion uh, as well as that speed. That's cool. So out of the, the assessment tools, will just tell you with regards to the speed of the movement and your, your range as well. Does it give me out there, Trent? Yeah, so yeah, that good question. It does tell you about your range. You know, it tells you, um, we, it's, uh, it measures tibial inclination, mm -hmm. uh, which is an indirect measure of dorsiflexion. So we can see, you know, it, as you know, right? You get some of those athletes that are lack confidence. Why do they lack confidence? Maybe it's a subconscious awareness that if they go down below a certain angle that they're gonna lose control. Um, and so they modify that, right? So, so we, we actually figure that into the algorithm. So they get deemed every time they don't squat low enough. And the, 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 the normative numbers that we use, so we use, we have normative numbers for uh, your tibial inclination. We have normative numbers for, you know, what should be your dynamic values. We have uh, uh, normative numbers for what should be your speeds. Um, and those are all based off of uh, data collection that we've done uh, in, in normatives. Uh, so non-injured athletes, these yeah. are all non-injured athletes. Um, and it's currently based off of over 8,000. So our number grows, you know, when we did for, when we went from our data, our data, data screen, data analysis from 4,000 to 8,000, it changed it, but not, not much. Okay. Okay, that's cool. That's really cool to get that information coming in and giving yeah. you a bit more of an objective measure, as you say, a wider scale as well in which to yeah. assess guys too. Um, I was wanting to chat to you a little bit, Trent, as well. Um, you first cropped up on my radar because I think it was just you started doing a lot of promotion for the work you're doing with uh, Rebound Vitality. Yes, sir. And I was just wondering, how did that opportunity come about? And Because it's based completely around first responders, if I'm not mistaken. Is that that's right? Okay. okay. That is correct. And so, you know, I originally started in uh, sports medicine. Um, Rebound Vitality, Rebound was actually started from a good friend of mine uh, who uh, basically applied the sports medicine model to first responders. Yeah. Um, and he had actually approached me saying, hey, does this technology have application for, for the tactical athlete? And ironically, we had just started some Department of Defense work looking at it in special operations. And so it, to me, it made a lot of sense. You know, uh, July, I joined Rebound Vitality. I run our injury, uh, we call it our innovative wellness. I won't call it injury prevention. We call it our innovative wellness program. And it focuses on four really key areas for first responders, behavioral health, oncology, cardiology, uh, as well as musculoskeletal. You know, we've, we've partnered with Normatec and Hyperice uh, to bring recovery equipment down to our first responders. We're building recovery rooms uh, inside police stations and fire stations. Uh, we're doing uh, the Dorsa V 3D, the EMI assessments uh, as a part of Academy. We do it as a part of their annual physicals. Um, and we've built out a, a, an amazing uh, sports cardiology program for first responders, as well as a uh, oncology program for first responders. 
you know, and, and the beauty of all of this is that uh, with my background around technology um, is that we've leveraged technology to capture big data. Yeah. Our goal, quite honestly, is to do the same thing that we've seen in sports, like I was talking about with concussion. Maybe there's a tie with, you know, we all know this, right? Maybe there's a tie with if you improve your fitness, you improve your hydration, you improve your nutrition, maybe you actually feel better in the head. Maybe your oncology risk goes down and maybe your cardiovascular risk goes down. So we, we know that, right? But no one has ever vetted that on mass data. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one of the things that we're doing at Rebound. That's really, really cool. I've seen some stuff you've been posting up. So at the moment, like how far reaching out are you guys with regards to, you know, first responder organizations and, you know, the Department of Defense, are you quite extensive across the country or is it within a few states at the moment? Yeah, you know, we're very blessed. Uh, we cover over 210 departments across the U.S. We go from the East Coast to the West Coast. Uh, we cover 10 states right now um, and we cover over 58,000 lives right now. And so we're adding, you know, probably five to 10 departments a month right now. Wow. Um, and we're growing like crazy. You know, the, the, the beauty of this, um, the beauty of working with this population, if they trust you and you do a good job, they spread the word for you. And that's exactly, we don't do any, I mean, we've only recently started doing advertising, um, but the word's getting out and it's usually getting out through the departments themselves. That's cool. That's really cool, Trent. And I mean, from both uh, perspectives of for like, you know, the the men and women who are working there within first responder organizations and that, so they're feeling better, they're looked after, you know, mm-hmm. so they can go out and do their job to the best of their ability. But obviously, there's still that management side to as well, who have got numbers to look after as well. So you guys are helping save them money as well with regards to you no know, uh, like reducing loss of injury hours and stuff like that as well. So huge dollars. I mean, huge dollars, you know, and that's, that's the other part is the program that we bring uh, for the first time administration is sitting with the union and they're all in agreement that this is something we need to do. Decent mate. I mean, going from the sporting model into like first responders and the tactical athlete now trend, what would you say are the similarities you're seeing between communities and what some of the differences you're typically yeah. seeing between those two? Yeah, you know, I, I would say the differences is just the variability in overall fitness. You know, you got some that are, you know, really fit, very, you know, very, um, you know, able to do it. And then you have some that are not, they're on the other end of the spectrum, you know, in a, in a team or an organization, those people would be cut, right? So I, I would say that that's one difference. I would say, the other difference is these folks are so freaking motivated. So I've dealt mm-hmm. with a lot of professional athletes who lack that motivation because they've been given everything, you know? Um, I would say that they're so motivated. And, you know, the majority of them that you meet are very humble. You know, they're, they're glad to be there. You know, I, I personally am humbled to work with them. You know, to think that I am providing something to someone who is freaking running into a building as the professional athletes are running out because they're scared that, that they freaking deserve something. You know, it's, it's to me, it's a bigger calling. You know, when, when Luis approached me, Luis Rivera is our, our CEO, when he approached me about doing this and doing it with the population that we're doing it with, and it was a no brainer, no freaking brainer. No, I understand agree. And that's one of the reasons one, I launched this podcast, but I steered my uh, my career towards this side as well. And it's just like, you know, for people in this community who give so much for so many other people, you know, and it's just like, if we look at the, the stakes of it, you know, out of all the populations, these guys can't afford to lose, you right. know, within sport, you lose, you can come back next week and right. whereas you may not have that option here. Right. And, you know, and, 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 you know, the way I look at it is by helping our people perform at their optimal level. Yep. And being the difference between life and death. Definitely. It's not missing yeah. a touchdown. It's not missing a tackle. It can literally mean the difference between life and death. 100%. 100%. I'm glad there's guys like yourself out there, Trent, amongst so many others who are doing this and really helping push this, this field yeah. forward, you know, as well, and looking after these guys. Um, I was going to ask you, Trent, you mentioned at the start there with regards to, you know, some of the research you're involved in. I know you're using this as well, just you've had a, a couple of unfortunate setbacks uh, with regards to your knee and that is, yeah, I know yeah, it's yeah, a lot. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. 
But I know you're um, you're using a lot of blood flow restriction with regards to your own training, your own rehab, and that. So, where where did your interest within blood flow restriction come about? Was this just part and parcel from the ACL side of things? You can see like right, yeah. this has got a big place in here. Yeah, you know, uh, so you know, again, I've been a weightlifter for forty plus years, and you know, I remember the old days when Arnold Schwarzenegger and Franco Colombo were wrapping wraps around their biceps and doing bicep curls and. That's what we always did, like in the gym. We followed what they did because they're the world's, you know, experts, right? And, you know, that was an early form of blood flow restriction training. You know, obviously, you know, uh, there's, you know, Dr. Sato, he, you know, he's one that's really kind of, really kind of started blood flow restriction training. Since then, there's just been, you know, uh, really kind of a resurgence with Johnny Owens, you know, and his, his launching of it in military personnel mm -hmm. uh, at the Center for the Intrepid in the U.S., um, you know, he got a lot of exposure with that. He launched the, the Owens Recovery Institute, you know, so it really started to get some, some uh, traction. You know, I, I was first introduced to it really in 2014, uh, started using it as part of my clinical practice in 2015. Um, and then I was approached, you know, part of the challenge for me was, you know, I wanted to, my athletes to use this. I wanted them to use it when they're they do as a part of their home exercise program or to do as a part of their training. And the challenge that I had quite honestly was I couldn't do that because you know how it is with athletes, like a little bit is good. So if I cut off all my blood flow and do it, it's great. Right. Yep. So I, I couldn't do that. Right. So um, I started working with a company called rock cuff, uh, which was a device uh, that provides uh, occlusion, mm -hmm. but does not fully occlude. Yeah. Um, and for me, uh, in their main, their main target was actually fitness. Uh, and so as I started looking into, you know, I got first prototypes that they developed um, all the way to their current products that they use. And I started teaching a certification course in BFR um, using their device. Um, I really like it. I think all of those devices have a lot of benefits and some's got, you know, they all have their positives and their negatives. For me, the reason that I use that one is because this the scalability of it. I can use it early on in the rehab process all the way to performance training where the athlete's using it on their own. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's so many things that you can do with BFR. And it's 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 a it to me is one of the, you know, aside from this uh, really cool 3D movement assessment, uh, to me it seems like it's a it's a game changer in rehab. Nice one, nice. I mean, with regards to changing the game and stuff, uh, obviously you're a JITS guy and that, you know, I know you've got some exciting projects going forward with that next, you know, can you tell us what, what you've got planned next with your career there? Yeah, you know, uh, so I've, I've got a big interest in, you know, I've been uh, uh, practicing, you know, uh, mixed martial arts, you know, striking, you know, 10, 12 years, uh, started jujitsu formally uh, back about eight years ago. Um, huge in that, you know, I, I love helping our, our guys. I, I love working with fighters. So I work with a lot of fighters. I love helping our guys prevent injuries. And so, um, you know, I, I've been working on this concept. We call it the uh, combat, combat athlete uh, science Institute uh, that really is focused around injury prevention uh, and performance enhancement for the combat athlete. You know, and really, again, taking the latest in research and science and applying that to the combat athlete um, and making it available to every single jujitsu gym around the country. Yeah. Um, because as you know, you know, most most gyms lose members between white belt and blue belt because they lose over 50 percent of their members and they lose that because they get either burned out or they get injured. And so they've you know, been dealing with these orthopedic injuries and it's like, I got my blue belt. I really don't need to continue on, you know, and that's, that's a, that's a huge problem for gyms because they can't grow their upper belts if they're constantly leaving. And so, and that, 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 that makes a gym suffer from a technique perspective. And so, you know, one of our goals is to help gyms retain their members through the same things we do in sports medicine by applying the latest science and technologies uh, to help people prevent injuries. Yeah, I mean, that's cool. Cause I mean, yeah, like you say, it's a, it's a physical sport and it's one yeah. of the things that's gonna happen, injuries are going to occur. Um, but I think within that, that population group as well, it's nice to have education around that so the guys can look after themselves a bit more because fighters are gonna be fighters and you know, they'll crack on regardless. So I think so sometimes it's a case of just being a bit more scientific with it. Yep, 
Absolutely. That's cool. Now, uh, Trent, I was going to say just before I start wrapping up here, mate, um, obviously you've had an incredible career so far and it's still going, you know, getting great there. You've been over two decades in the field um, from academic research practitioner in that as well. A little bit of time out there with Microsoft as well. For anyone who's listening here, you know, for some inspiration or who wants to follow up in the footsteps of yourself, what would be your advice to them there as well, you know, from your career? You know, what have you learned, biggest lessons, and what would you change potentially? Yeah, you know, the, the big things I would say is uh, don't let people deter you. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when I first went to PT school, people told me, ah, you know, they only take 10% of their applicants, you'll never get in. You know, when, when I started talking about, you know, movement assessment, people were like, oh, that's too hard. There's, too, there's already good things out there. You don't need to do that. You know, so I think number one is that, you know, don't let people deter you. If you've got something in your mind, go get it. You have the ability to go get it. It may take a while, but you, you know, you, you can go get it. The other thing is never stop learning. You know, the, you know, the thing that I love about what I do is that I'm constantly learning. I'm still pulling journals every single month and looking for papers. You know, I constantly want to verify if I'm doing the right thing or do I need to look at something, another avenue. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, people need to understand, you know, I get these young clinicians that come to me and say, well, gosh, you know, you've done so much, you know, how do I go about doing that? And how do I do that in the next five years? Well, shit, if it, if I could have figured out how to do that in five years, I would have done that in five years. It took me 18 years to get this far. Like, you know, don't give up. That's my point is, you know, that's where most people fails. It's like, you go so long and then it's like, not there yet. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna give this up. Don't give up. You got to be persistent. You know, it's, it's taken me a long time to get here. You know, I'm 52 years old and, you know, quite honestly, I look back at my career and I get kind of disappointed. Like the God, man, I just only gotten like 0.12 and three and four off my, my to-do list. Like I got a whole nother list. I'm 52. Like what I get another, maybe 10 years, 15 years. Like how much longer, how much longer is it going to take me? Right. So just be persistent. That's great. Great advice there, Trent. Thank you for that. Um, I was going to ask you, ask everyone who comes on this show as well, just regard to what they're engaging with in their own development and CPD. I know you mentioned a little bit there about your constantly staying up in research there, but anyone listening, Trent, could you use a book, a app or a website recommendation you've personally found useful for your own development or education? Sure. You know, probably one of the leading books that I used is a book called Palestanga. Uh, don't ask me to spell that, but it's Palestanga. Uh, okay. Palestanga is basically, it's like a, an anatomy book that goes origin insertion in the function, but then it goes through the function of the muscle in a closed kinetic chain. Okay. So it really gives you the functionality of how a muscle works. Uh, Palestanga is a really famous book. It's, it's very, very thick. They're probably on the like 50th edition of that now. Okay. Uh, so that, that to me, uh, was a foundational book. And I'm looking over at my, my bookshelf here. Um, I'd say another one was um, Florence Kendall, Manual Muscle Testing. You know, again, um, I'm, a big, I'm a big proponent of manual muscle testing. And, 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 you know, a part of our movement assessment is I would initially in the initial phases do the movement assessments. I'd, I'd see where I think the movements are, what's causing those weaknesses. And then I would go test my theory um, by using the uh, Florence Kendall approach. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, that's, that's really big for me. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, um, look for some key people out there, you know, uh, courses by Kevin Wilk. I was blessed to have an office right next to him. I got to practice right next to him for a number of years. Um, he's an amazing individual. Somebody else out there, his name's Todd Ellenbecker. Um, I got to train uh, under Todd for a number of years another amazing individual. Um, another guy out there is Bob Donatelli. You know, again, another PT, PhD. Um, you know, he's got some, some uh, strange and, and very, um, uh, very opinionated theories. Um, but again, just an amazing learning opportunity. You know, um, another guy is Carl DeRosa. Uh, Carl DeRosa has put out some amazing, I actually got to spend a year dissecting lumbar spine with him and then looking and develop, we developed a, uh, a core stabilization program for the Seattle Mariners, um, which last I heard they were still using it. 
um, but he and I got to dissect out lumbar spine and he's an amazing teacher, you know, just uh, the way he makes you think through the process, you know, so, you know, surround your people with, surround yourself with amazing people and you learn. All right, that's awesome. Thank you, Trent. I'll make sure I'll post up those links yeah. into our show notes as well so guys can find them. Um, final thing, Trent, obviously dropped a lot of knowledge here. I'm pretty sure we're carpal tunnel syndrome right now. I've been writing so many uh, notes down here, but, but um, if anyone's listening, you know, and wants to reach out, Trent, or find out a little bit more about, you know, what's the best ways they can do that? Yeah, you know, uh, follow me on Instagram, uh, BJJPT underscore ACL underscore guy. Um, you know, that's, I, I tend to post a lot of different information on there. I do try to post blogs that I do. I treat, do try to post um, uh, research articles, uh, some, you know, personal stuff, interesting stuff. Um, you know, that's probably the best way. I'm also, you know, on um, Twitter, you know, always follow me on Twitter as well. Okay. You know, I do, I do, I do try to be very social. If people have questions or anything like that, and they reach out to me on social media, I try to be very responsive. I think that's how you and I got in contact. Uh, but I do try to be very responsive because I, I feel like you need to get back to your profession. Mm -hmm. And I love doing that. Uh, that's cool. I mean, I appreciate that fully, Trent, and thank you very much. I mean, I know you're a super busy guy, so thank you very much for giving up some of your time, dude. Absolutely. A, a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Perfect. Thank you, Trent. Take care, buddy. Thank you, John. Hi, guys. Really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. The continued support us can ask you to do me a simple favor. First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me, and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.